from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies, like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Brute Force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio. Special Operations Military News and Straight Talk with the Guys in the Community. Hi, welcome back to Soft Rep Radio. I am your host, Rad, and I have a very special guest today, and I'm going to tell you about him real quick here. So first of all, his name's Douglas Lute, and he's a part of a group of former national security advisors under the Bush administration who are set to release a new book, Handoff, the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama on February 15th. The book makes public for the first time a set of 30 newly declassified transition memoranda that were prepared by President Bush's National Security Council staff for the incoming Obama administration to outline the key foreign policy challenges that it would be facing. The book features self-critical insights and analysis from a handful of National Security Council experts who advised President Bush, including the former Deputy National Security Advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan, our guest, Douglas Lute. Now, he currently serves as the CEO of Cambridge Global Advisors, LLC, which is a certified service disabled veteran-owned small business. For those of you out there that are in the small business world and are veterans, he's one of those. Here we go. So in the book, Douglas contributes to the analysis of President Bush's foreign policy legacy, with an in-depth look at military intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan. So with that introduction, welcome to our show. Oh, Grace, it's really good to be with you. Yes, thank you. So tell me, how old were you when you joined the Army? (laughs) Well, so look, I grew up in Michigan City, Indiana, on the southernmost point of Lake Michigan as it juts down around Chicago into northern Indiana, and left there when I was 18, went to West Point, and frankly, never went back. So I guess the short answer to your question is I was 18 when I went to West Point. Yeah. 
And uh, were you like uh, baseball, uh, nah. basketball? And- well, if you're in Indiana and you're growing up, uh, you're playing basketball. I did that as, as well as everybody in my <laughs> age cohort, but not well enough to make anything of it beyond sort of high school. So uh, I didn't play at West Point, but played recreationally up until maybe 10 years ago or so when, you know, eventually your knees give out. (laughs) Sure. Now, what was your academia focused on in uh, West Point? So at the time, everybody graduated from West Point in those days, got a Bachelor of Science degree because West Point originated, you know, 100 some years earlier as an engineering school, right? So as a legacy of that beginning, everyone gets a Bachelor of Science degree. But We did not yet have majors and minors when I graduated. They do now. But I focused on international security affairs. So pretty much the sort of thing that I ended up doing later, much later in my Army career. Yeah, so here you are, a young man going into West Point, 18, saying, when I grow up, I want to be involved in international affairs. <laughs> and now when you look back on your younger self, telling yourself you're going to be involved in international affairs, did you believe it? <laughs> well, you know, it was so far over the horizon for me. When, you know, when you're an undergraduate student, I think most undergraduates have some image of what they want to do, right? But I, I suspect the hit rate, <laughs> that is yeah. the, the, the connection between what they end up doing and what they imagined they were going to do as undergraduates isn't very high, actually, right? And as you know, life takes a lot of sort of twists and turns and unforeseen opportunities and so forth. So I had a persistent interest in foreign policy and international affairs and sort of strategic, geostrategic issues. But you know, when you're in the army as a lieutenant, a captain, a major, even a colonel and lieutenant colonel, you know, you, you've got your head down doing what the army expects you to do. Right. And you don't really have, I mean, it, it could be a passing interest, but it's mostly that. You're consumed as an army officer with day-to-day affairs and, you know, the next uh, deployment or the next uh, national training center rotation or, you know, whatever's around the corner. So I had this interest, but it didn't really sort of come to fruition until later in my career. I suppose as a lieutenant colonel, I first sort of, you know, reconnected with the sort of strategic level because I was on the joint staff in J5. This is strategic plans and policy. And it happened to be 94 to 96, right in the middle of the Balkans Wars. So at that level, in the Pentagon, in the directorate that was dealing with the Dayton Accords and all that, working for General Wes Clark, who was working on the Dayton Accords to try to bring a close to the violence in Bosnia. That's where I really got my sort of sank my teeth into international affairs. Yeah. And so as you get from Lieutenant Colonel, as you, you know, climb the ladder of Lieutenant, Captain, you know, moving on up, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, you hit Brigadier General in your life, right? And so what was that like, that moment when you're like, hey, it's coming? Well, so this is a big, for Army officers, and I think for the other services as well, the, the, the gate leading to flag rank, right? Mm-hmm. So in the Army, Brigadier General or, or Admiral in the Navy is a big cut. And, you know, you aspire to it, but you're never quite sure how you're going to match up. And there are, it's not predictable. It's not fully predictable. I mean, nobody should have confidence that they're going to make flag rank. (laughs) Right. There's just too many variables, right? Things happen. Before I made one star, Brigadier General in the Army, however, I had a really unique experience. And that was first to command a cavalry regiment 
which took me back to my roots as a young officer because I'd served in the same regiment. But then right after regimental command, went back to the Pentagon and served as the executive officer for General Hugh Shelton, who was came out of the soft community and was then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So that was a particularly interesting portal mm-hmm. to watch what was happening at the senior most levels of our military as I worked at his side, right? And in particular, I worked at his side on 9-11. So that was a real eye-opener in terms of the way sometimes history presents events like 9-11 that significantly change everything that follows, yep. right? So on right. September 10th, we could not, 2001, we could not have imagined the full impact of the next day. September 11th. But beginning on September 12th, the world had changed, right? And uh, you, your listeners, all of us, Americans especially, right, have vivid memories of where we were on 9-11. And to some extent, Rod, we're still living with the consequences of that sunny day in September 20 years ago. So that that was sort of a... Where were you when that did happen? So on that day, I was with the chairman, General mm-hmm. Shelton. Oh, wow. We had taken off from Andrews Air Force Base on a military passenger aircraft, headed to a meeting in uh, NATO. I think it was a meeting in Romania or someplace, right? It was a long scheduled meeting. So right. we had taken off early that day, overflown Manhattan, crystal clear blue skies, and we were making our way to Europe. As we approached the boundaries of the United Kingdom, one of the pilots, one of the military pilots came back into the cabin, the passenger cabin of the aircraft and said, you know, Colonel Lute, we've been watching or listening to BBC, BBC yeah. radio, because we're kind of bored up here in the cockpit. And, you know, there's this peculiar report that a plane has struck one of the twin towers. And we thought, gosh, you know, that's really strange because we had overflown Manhattan. It was a crystal clear right. sky. How could this happen? Had, yeah. You know, we had a failure of imagination. Right. We imagined that this was some small, you know, single pilot, privately owned aircraft. You know, maybe there was a mishap in the cockpit or a health issue or something with the pilot. And it was a tragic incident. Right. A few minutes later. okay, same pilot comes back and reports the second tower was hit. I said, okay, this is obviously no accident. I, I went back into the personal cabin where the chairman was and said, look, we've had not one, but two. Two. Stripes. And he said, OK, turn us around. We're not going to Romania for the NATO meeting. We're going back to Washington. So we turned around. We're refueled in midair as we approach the U.S. airspace, which had been shut down. Right. All planes had been grounded at that right. point. We picked up a fighter jet escort escort, I suppose. Well, yeah. One on each wing. And they were to escort us to back to Andrews Air Force Base. We overflew. Manhattan, and this time now, the smoke plume was at 20,000 feet. So we literally sort of overflew ground zero, landed at Andrews Air Force Base, which is out in Maryland outside D.C. As soon as we landed, we could see on the horizon the smoke from the Pentagon, which had also been struck. We made our way by motorcade to the west lawn of the Pentagon, which had been and a couple images, you know, Rob, that just stick with you, that things you can't quite explain. One is that as we approached the site of the attack, which was still sort of smoldering, the fire had mostly been put out, still smoldering, the casualties had been evacuated and so forth. 
someone had had the instinct, I guess, to rope off the whole west lawn of the Pentagon with the sort of yellow police line marker tape. You know, we sure. thought like, okay, was that really necessary? I mean, it's pretty clear that something happened here, you know, but right. somebody was doing, somebody was following the SOP, right? The standard operating procedures. I remember stepping over this tape, this yellow crime scene tape. And as we made our way closer to the point of impact, not getting too close, but, you sure. know, just getting closer. Within. There was a aircraft seat, almost undamaged, sitting on the lawn of the Pentagon. And I thought to my, and this bothers me, not bothers me, but it, you know, it puzzles me to this day. Right. How did that seat survive the impact and end up on the lawn when the rest of the plane was destroyed on impact with the building? And I just, it's just one of those peculiar things that I can't explain, right? But anyway, that was life on 9-11 with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s, dance away with hip-hop beats, and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. You know, I was there, I was a young man, I was 21, and my dad comes in the room, he's like, hey, the first tower got hit, turn the TV on. Uh, we were watching right. that, and we were just watching that. My mom was upstairs. My my wife at the time, my girlfriend was in the room, and I had just gotten out of the Air Force. My dad was just a retired SF guy. He's like, "Let's watch this." So we're watching it, and then a second one went in. And at that time, he looked at me. And he said the same thing that you thought is that's two strikes, that's an attack. And then he just looked at me and he said, "We're under attack." And I was like, "Oh wow, Dad never really talks like that." Chilly, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was just very chilly, and I've that puzzles me about the whole situation and where we're at today. And I know there's been many attacks on the World Trade Center previously to that one. That one was the one that stabbed it in the heart. You know, in the 93, there was the underground, right, you know, that did kill people, you know, uh, sadly, but just didn't do the damage they were looking for, that collateral damage. And so, I mean, it changed the world, right? The economy, the banking world, the industry, everybody uh, was all of a sudden, let's see your books, <laughs> they're like oh oh uh it's all in the trade center <laughs> right right no and i mean this is one of those historic moments which you know tend to come around every 10 or 20 years i think before 9 11 the last such sort of pivotal moment in my career was the fall of the berlin wall right right in, right. in 89 right. right 
So you had the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, two years later, the breakup of the Soviet Union in 91. That was one of these pivotal moments. Right. Then for me, the next one was 9-11, right? So yeah. 10 years later, 2001. And I got to tell you, even as we're recording this podcast, I think we're in the midst of another, and that is the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine a year ago, so February of 22, will in time prove to be as as eventful, as pivotal as the those previous two. So once every 10 or 20 years, you know, we get a an inflection point, a pivotal point like this. Right. And so when that did go on, when when Russia did invade Crimea in 2014, when the airliners were getting shot down by their weaponry, uh, uh, you know, uh, supposedly uh, saying, stay out of our airspace. OK, commercial airliners, just stay out of our airspace is the threat that comes back from the leadership over there at the time, who's still a leader of it today. It's like, why are we uh, I mean, I'd rather it ha- be handled right now over there before it comes over here. We don't want it here. It's too late if it comes here to the U.S. We need to handle it right now. And I feel just, you know, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Well, I think, look, we're going to feel the impacts of Ukraine, Mm -hmm. even if the fighting remains contained inside Ukraine. Right. So we're feeling this by way of global inflation. The global energy market for gas and oil is being re-engineered to cut off Russia at least from at least Russia's export of oil and gas to Western Europe, that's having a major impact on energy prices and energy flows and so forth. You know, if you are a country that imports grain or fertilizer, the war in Ukraine is having a major impact on your on your livelihood because Western Russia and Eastern Ukraine is really the breadbasket of Europe and has for generations provided the grain and the fertilizer that has fed much of the global south so think the middle east and africa and so forth right so look these effects you can't contain the effects of ukraine in ukraine much like you couldn't contain the effects of 9 11 and you could not contain the effects of the fall of the berlin wall so these inflection points these historic moments have a way of sort of propagating ripple effects or aftershocks that will be global. So we can't escape this. But I do agree with your point that, look, it's. I think we have a responsibility to support the Ukrainians, in part because of these global effects, but also in part because it's the right thing to do. Every nation, if you go back to the UN Charter, 1945, every nation has a right to defend itself. And the UN member states acknowledge that they have a right to support those who are defending themselves. And so I think even all the way back to the UN Charter, there's a mandate for us to do what we can to help the Ukrainians uh, defend themselves. And how we do on this and how it turns out, which is you know not really the, the purpose of our our talk today, but- Well- How it turns out will affect us as Americans. I completely agree. Look, it really comes down to two alternative views of how the world works, right? Does it work on the one hand in the model of nation states, meaning that nations, groups of people uh, can organize into states 
with certain responsibilities and privileges. Privileges like territorial integrity. In other words, your territory is your territory and somebody else can't seize it, all right? National sovereignty, meaning that that nation on that territory can take its own decisions about the nature of its government, its laws and culture and so forth, right? So that's kind of one model, the nation state model. The competing model is the, is the model of empires, right? Which essentially says the strong will right. do whatever they like in their neighborhoods and they will inevitably seek to expand their territory. Mm-hmm. And what Putin has declared publicly, I mean, we should just listen to him, right? He's to bring the when empire he, back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's declared publicly that Ukraine and other nation states on yes. the periphery of Russia should be part of Russia, should be controlled by Russia, should be the dominated. Empire. Yes. And he, you know, he cites as his models for this. Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. Exactly. Time of the great Russian empires. So as I look back over last hundred years, right, much of the fight, much of the global struggle was between these two models. So World War One was about empires. Right. World War Two was about empires, the Japanese empire, the German empire, right? The Cold War was essentially about empires. Imperial, yeah. And, yeah. and the imperial reach of the Soviet Union, right? That's right. Um, and so this is familiar, right? This should feel familiar to us, that this is an old continuing fight between these two models, nation states right. on the one hand and empires on the other. And what it really comes down to is, how do we want to live? Do we want to live in a world where empires can dictate and nation states are always at risk? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to live, on the other hand, with the basic rules of the road organized around nation states? That's fundamentally what Ukraine is about. Ukraine would like to be just left alone and be a sovereign nation with its own integrity. And like, you know, we'll pump Russia's oil through our country to Europe. No problem. Like there was no problem. There was no there was no provoked message sent. There was right. no them rattling any sabers like, don't you dare, don't you dare from Ukraine to Russia. It was the opposite. And it has just progressed and progressed. And, you know, they want to annex all these different lands and say, now it's my turf. But in the, right. it, but that's not how Ukraine entered into the treaties was with right. that being your turf. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Ukraine's been a sovereign state since the Soviet Union broke that's up right. in 91. So for what, 30 years? It's right. a member of the United Nations. It's got an elected government. It has its own economy. It has its own sort of national instincts and culture and so forth. And they're not exactly the same as Russian. So the Ukrainians see themselves as a sovereign state. Mm-hmm. And that's how we, the United States, but I see them that way. Yeah. The United Nations, you know, look, the United Nations two weeks had a vote, two weeks ago had a vote among the 190 members of the United Nations. All but in the vote, which was essentially, should we condemn Russia for the right. attack? Right. All but seven of the 190 some said either said, yes, we condemn or we abstain. Some 30 or 40 abstained from the vote because they didn't want to irritate Russia. Right. But the overwhelming majority of the members of the United Nations said this is wrong and this is not the model we want to live with. So I think it's pretty interesting. And I think that, you know, back to our original point, Mm -hmm. I think. February 24th, the date of the invasion last year, 2022, will eventually reside alongside 
September 11th, 2001, mm-hmm. and November 9th, 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, mm. as historical, impactful inflection points or pivotal moments. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances so if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest that's why it's got to be a cfp find your cfp professional at let's make a plan.org i'm usually a pretty impartial individual but i could see that uh you know over there there's thousands of people being shelled with these rockets and supersonics coming in and trying to be deflected by some right. type of defense system that they are that they have but they're still coming through and these people are in their homes and they're just sleeping it's just hey you know i get war as hell but when you're just doing this one-sided situation it's not really you're just a bully it's right. awful it's awful there's no right. It's blatant imperialism, and, Thanks, and we, yeah. we shouldn't put up with it. I hope that my listeners are of the same understanding, too, and, and I don't want to put up with it. I want to be able to have this podcast and be able to talk with my guests like Doug and have these kinds of conversations without being censored, right, and not having to be fear being put into a political prison because I maybe offended somebody that's higher in a government that, than me and send suits to my door who, who needs that you know at least in america we have you know the right to elect an official to help guide us with those rules of the road all right, right? and then and then if we don't like it we can re-elect some re-elect someone else or or try to you know stay vigilant in our own lanes in our own states okay right. so it really comes down to this to your point about rules of the road what are the rules of the road for the international community and are those rules centered on the rights and responsibilities of nation states, or are those rules, do those rules permit some states to dominate others, as in imperialism? So um, that's what it's about. And Americans need to understand that, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, just make sure that it's, I'm trying to put that out there. That's what we're all about today on on this. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a Cold War child, born in 77, you know, raised in a Warsaw era with my father always showing me little films and little models of like 
tanks and RPGs as a little kid in his office. You know, <laughs> I'll tell you, there's a guy in the army or gal who gets to make models and like little trees and shrubs and like spray paint them and they have a rank and that's a job. If you're looking to join the military, there are many options for you to go out there. This is not a paid sponsorship from anybody other than the American flag waving saying, if you feel like you want to join the military, go talk to a local National Guard recruiter, go talk to a local career advancement, army career recruiter and say, hey, you know, I think I got what it takes. Can you test me? And they'll give you a test and they'll test you. And if if you got what it takes, go after it and be the one that, you know, to your listeners, you know, that that's the right message. And it's also, you know, you don't have to go, you have to join the military with the idea that you're going to stay there forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, a small minority stay for 20 years. Sure. But, you know, for your younger listeners, it's worth considering giving something back to America for three or four years. And by the way, in those three or four years of service in whatever service you pick or the National Guard, as you mentioned, right, uh, you're going to pick up skills and you're going to build your resume and you'll be more employable after those three or four years than you were coming right out of school, whether it's high school or college. So think about that. It's not a bad way to transition into sort of adult life. And you get the added benefit of contributing to the country, to our country in the meantime. So it's really worth thinking about. Yeah, and it's a whole sense of pride when you do it yourself. You know, if if it's a conscriptions and uh, it's a forced situation of a draft, you're not going to be too happy if you have to go and uh, and do this job no matter what. But if you just happen to say, you know, I want to give back and and take the choice and choose yourself and pick your own destiny. Like most things in life, right? It's, right. There's power of choice. Right. And, we're, you know, our force today, nobody gets drafted, right? It's an all-volunteer right. force. A hundred percent of the nearly two million total Americans who serve in some capacity in the military are volunteers. hundred percent. So for all of them, they're going to get the benefit of your point, which is, I made this choice. Mm-hmm. Right? This is, you know, this is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you don't have to do it forever. It also makes you want to be there because you chose it. <laughs> You're like, hey, yeah, okay, got to get you up. You want to be there every <laughs> single day, right? <laughs> you get like, you know, that's life, right? I mean, you, no matter where you work or whatever you take on, you know, every day is, you know, not the best day of your life. Let's bring that full circle to you then. So, you're Ranger, right? I am. Well. So, I, Look, there's a difference, of course, in the Army, right, between being Ranger qualified, which means you wear the tab on your uh-huh. on your right. shoulder, right, and serving in a Ranger regiment. So I am Ranger qualified. I went to went and graduated from Ranger school. Mm-hmm. But as an armor officer, not an infantry officer, I didn't serve in the Ranger regiment. Oh, yes, that's mechanized, right? So you're after. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah that's right. awesome. OK, so you're a. Is second cavalry? Is that my yeah. yeah? So when I graduated from West Point, my first assignment was in the second Army Cavalry Regiment. At okay. that time, the Army had three of these regiments, and they were designed to be the eyes and ears, the reconnaissance unit in front of an Army Corps, right? So if you think an Army Corps is a collection of Army divisions, so three to five Army divisions. One regiment served as sort of the scouts, if you will, in front of an army corps. And the regiment that I went to served in front of 7th U.S. Corps, which was in Germany. And 
these the peak of the Cold War in those days. I, I signed into this unit in 1976, the year before you were born. Huh. And <laughs> this unit was serving on border duty between East Germany, West Germany, and West Germany and Czechoslovakia. So along the Iron Curtain, essentially. Yeah, really. Where it had ended up in the lead of in the, as the lead unit in Patton's Third Army when the war stopped in 1945. So where the war stopped, the lines were drawn on the map, and this unit had stayed in place from 45 for you know 30 years until I got there, and wow. stayed in place all the way until the fall of the Berlin Wall when Germany a year later became united and the the Iron Curtain essentially collapsed. So yeah, so I I went right to this unit. It was fantastic. It was just a great unit. Uh, we had an active everyday mission along the border. We were the first to receive in Germany all the most modern equipment. So the first to receive the Bradley fighting vehicle, the first to nice. receive Abrams tanks and so forth, which re always reminded us that our mission was important because we took that first receipt of a new equipment as a signal that we were important to the Army. Right. Uh, and so it was a wonderful place to grow up as a young officer. Right. And you were important to the army and obviously to the world and to the nation. I mean, uh, I mean, look, <laughs> batter up. OK, get in the batting deck, you know, get on. You're, you're ready to go. You got the Abrams and the Bradley fighting vehicle. And and how many troops does the Bradley fighting vehicle hold inside of it? So it's got two configurations, right? There's a scout configuration, which is a crew of five. Right. So a driver, a gunner and vehicle commander and then two scouts that come out the back two dismounted scouts. And then the, this basically the same vehicle, if it's configured for infantry, uh, dismounts an infantry squad out the back. So the answer to your question is somewhere between five and sort of 10, okay. 10 or 12. Depending so just, on what's inside of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And, and which of the two missions it's configured for, right? Is mm -hmm. it a reconnaissance scouting vehicle or is it an infantry fighting vehicle? And they're always communicating with each other once they deploy out of the back and that they have to go into check a house. They're always like right. talking constantly with each other, letting everybody know what's going on. Yeah, the dismounts can talk to the vehicle. And that's important because the vehicle, the Bradley, has significant direct fire capability. So oh, it's yeah. got a 25 millimeter cannon on it and it's got a 7.62 machine gun on it and ultimately a tow missile uh, launcher as well. So it can provide significant fire support to dismounted infantry, which is the whole idea, right? Right. As long as they stick there and protect it from any sticky that's bombs. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, <laughs> Don't need no sticky bombs. <laughs> so when you're talking about this new book that you have coming out, and so the name of Yeah, the so book, it's out. So I, yeah. I, I have a copy here for you. So it's called Handoff. Yes. Yeah, it's a little imposing, right? It's that's a small like, book. <laughs> it's like 700 pages. But here's the basic idea of this book. So Steve Hadley, who was President George W. Bush's second national security advisor. Mm -hmm. So for the second four years of the Bush eight-year term, right, Hadley was the national security advisor. For the last 18 months of that period, I was Steve's deputy focused on Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So that's kind of the set. Because of the term limits, being that that the president would only serve two terms, Bush in 2008 knew that he wasn't going to be president after the election, right? And the election was being waged between the two candidates, Obama and McCain, and that process was going on mm -hmm. inside the White House 
while the campaign was going on outside the White House, inside the White House, we were getting ready to hand off. Sure. So that's the name of the book, Handoff, right? Yeah. And we did this handoff by way of drafting something like 30 memoranda focused on either geographical issues or functional issues that we knew the new administration, our successors, would have to deal with. On the afternoon of Inauguration Day, whoever is president was going to own these 30 issues, right? So we thought, and Steve Hadley actually shepherded or led this process, he thought, look, the responsible way to do this is to have the current team in the White House write a memo on each of these 30 topics. So for me, the Iraq war, the war in Afghanistan, right? Provide supporting documents, annexes and so forth, right? And bundle these all in sort of large government three ring binders, right? All tabulated by issues. Of course. And whoever wins the election, right? We will deliver these binders. There's a stack. Boom. Yeah. And here's congratulations. Yes. (laughs) You're the new team. Now let's get to work. Okay. And And then we offered on Iraq and Afghanistan, my two memos, we offered briefings to the new team. So once President Obama or President-elect Obama wins the election, so between Election Day and early November and January 20th, Inauguration Day, you've got those several months of transition. So Bush is still president during that transition time, but the Obama team is standing up, right? People are being named and cabinet officers are being nominated and all that's happening, right? We offered to not only provide these binders, these transition memos, but also to brief in person the incoming team. And so so these memos actually formed the substance of the handoff between one administration and the other. So now, so that all took place at the end of 2008 and 2009. Seems so, respectful, if I can just say that. Just seems respectful what you guys did. It's a very responsible way to do transitions. It, it really is. Uh, and I applaud it. Why now do we publish this book? Well, the idea was hatched a couple years ago that what if we went back and looked at those 30 memos, all of which are classified? So, but what if we considered asking President Bush to declassify huh. these 30 memos and then go back to the authors of the memos, find them. They're all right. over the country, right? right? Get a hold of these folks <laughs> and ask them to reflect on what they wrote in 2008. And essentially ask the questions, what did we get right and what did we get wrong? So what you see in the book are, I don't know, I keep saying 30, but roughly 30 chapters that take everything from the fight against AIDS to the war in Iraq, right? right? Features at the start, a declassified memo. It is the actual memo out of the archives that George Bush himself declassified, right? So you actually see that declassified memo. And those memos themselves are historical documents. So they're really kind of interesting. It was was interesting to me because, of course, I don't have a copy of the memo. It's classified. So when it was declassified, it was was kind of intriguing to go back and read the thing and say, you know, personally, what did we get right and what did we get wrong? But then behind each of these 30 memos in the book 
is a short chapter, an assessment by the authors of the memos of how did we do and what proved right, what did we get right, and what did we get not so right. So it's it's also a very interesting, Rod, it's a very interesting sort of look in the mirror, an introspection, an honest effort to assess how we did back in 2008. I found the project kind of cool in the sense that it was an attempt to honestly look at something that we could have just left classified. Right. You know, the historians would unpack this 20 or 30 years from now, and they'd say, well, isn't this interesting? But this was a very deliberate, and I think a very responsible effort led by Steve Hadley and supported by the president. I mean, his president was personally involved in this. Right. And so, and so President Bush is basically just saying, hey, you know, I'm still around and I'm okay with this being, you know, talked about. Yeah, and uh, let's look at where I screwed up, if I screwed up, however that well, was, and or well, look, what I did right. Very, much like the, the original transition memos, which I think were a responsible effort to hand right. off one administration to another, right? This book is a very responsible or honest way to say, how did we do? to right. look in the mirror and say, how did we do? And, and that honesty, that sort of willingness to be introspective. Self-assessment. Warts and all. Yeah. Says a lot about the people, about the president, but also about the people who staffed him. So I, I found it, it was, it, first of all, it was a lot of fun after these years, right? To go back and reconnect with the others who are right. in the book. Reunion tour. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. In fact, I mean, you mentioned that just... As the book was uh, was released a couple of weeks ago, President Bush and Mrs. Bush came to Washington and held a reception for all of us who contributed to the book. So and that reception was a reunion. Right, I mean, exactly. I saw people that I hadn't seen in a decade, right? So exactly. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances so if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest that's why it's got to be a cfp find your cfp professional at let's make a plan.org friendships uh, camaraderie that has been built in your trenches in that side of governing and being in the military a friend of mine who was a officer when i was enlisted in the air force he's like rad it's 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 the same game it's just different rank it's just the same game there's just someone above you it's always just someone's there like hey you got something to do you know and you're just trying to get ranked so bravo to the lane that you lived in and that you maintained i also want to say good job on transitioning from one 
oh, what am I trying to say? One presidency to another, right? You. Yeah. So this is curious. You know, so in 2007, as part of the George Bush surge into Iraq, right? And this was the, so Bush committed the last 30,000 available troops into Iraq in an effort to quell the sectarian violence. So Sunni and Shia violence, largely tearing Iraq apart, right? Right. So in January 2007, he takes his decision, makes the announcement to the nation, commits the last five army brigades, two more Marine battalions into the Anbar province. And a lot of your listeners will relate, might have been part of the surge. Exactly. Right? As part of this, he decides he wants to add someone to his staff to keep him personally informed of how the surge is going through the last 18 months of his administration. Because again, he knew he was going to leave, you know, at the end of his term. That someone turned out to be me, quite sort of unexpectedly. So in July of 07, I moved to the White House and I take up this job of briefing him every morning on overnight events in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I imagine to myself, well, you know, I can do anything. You know, you can do push-ups for 18 months. There's only 18 months left in this administration. And right. then I'll go back into the army, right? At that time, an active duty three-star. And I'll go back in the army and pick up where I left off. That all looked good through the writing of these memos and through the election of Barack Obama and all that until Obama names retired General Jim Jones as his national security advisor. I had worked with Jim Jones at U.S. European Command as a one-star when he was a four-star U.S. European Command commander. Jones is looking at the Manning diagrams of the National Security Council staff and sees that my team and I are staffing Iraq and Afghanistan. He says, wow, you know, I've only got a couple weeks. <laughs> Inauguration is on January 20th. After the president takes the oath of office on January 20th, we're going to own these two wars. By God, what are we going to do that afternoon? Right. So he asks my team and me to stay. This is not that peculiar because of the 15 people on my team for Iraq and Afghanistan, only one was a political appointee. All the others were drawn from the national security community. So CIA officers, USAID, State Department, military like me, and so forth. So we were nonpartisan. They didn't know exactly. we were Republican or Democrat. So it was safe, right? right? And of course, we said, of course, we'll stay across the two administrations. I imagined that that extension, if you will, into the Obama administration might be for four or six months, giving the president and General Jones time to find their own team, right? People who had not worked for his predecessor, George Bush. It turns out I spent another four and a half years working these issues for President Obama. And that total of six years in the White House across those two administrations was really the pinnacle of my career and was an experience that I wouldn't trade for anything. And I doubt that you would ever change that. <laughs> That's awesome. What a great legacy that you're going to leave. Thanks for taking on the call to do your job. We appreciate you. And I know that a three-star general, which is a lieutenant general, is not an easy accomplishment to even get. You can only have so many generals in the military at the same time, and they have to all be within certain stars. And so you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, and, and I'm just throwing that out there. But, you know, good job on uh, what you're doing today. And uh, I hope that you're super successful moving forward and, you know, continue uh, being that. Well, thanks. Uh, and, that, and no, look, Brad, thanks to you for taking on this initiative, too. You know, you wouldn't have to do this. But this is this podcast and your efforts, these kinds of conversations, right, are important ways to connect us to your community as well. Right. right? And, and so. 
That's an important dialogue. I know many of your listeners are veterans, uh, probably of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and sometimes cold warriors as well, I suspect. So look, we're all part of the same community. We may not have always perfect alignment with our politics, but at the bottom line, we all are Americans. And whether you were in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, active duty or reserve, on your uniform, it said U.S., right? So U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force, right? And that's the part that I think unites us. So I I applaud your effort to just connect to other veterans and so forth and try to have these kinds of conversations. So thank you. You're very welcome. And with that, I'm going to say it's been wonderful to have you on. And if we have any other style of conversation to have in the future, I'd love to have you back on as a guest. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Happy to do it. Well, thank you. And to my listener out there that's listening, I really appreciate you. If you got any questions or comments and you want to comment down below, go ahead and drop them on whatever platform it is, and I'll try to reach out to you. And uh, again, my name is Rad, and thanks for Brandon Webb having me host SoftRep, and uh, I'll say peace. You've been listening to SoftRep Radio. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.